0: Recently came across a rather uh, troubling poem. It was written by a very hurt young woman, um, very hurt by her own dad. She entitled it, My Father is My Enemy. In it she wrote this, If this is who you really are, then I want you far. If this is what a father is, then I never want one. You abandoned me in my time of need, left me with nothing to eat. I had to survive on my own two feet. All the money you had and still you treated me so bad. You're the worst dad and that makes you so glad. I hate when you yell. I, I hate that sound. I looked for you and hell is what I found. I should have been your princess with the crown. Instead, you treated me like I was your clown. Betrayed me and left me with a frown. Look at my tears. What about my fears? You can't help me anymore. Don't even try. What for? I hate what you have done to me. You are my dad just by name. Because of you, I will never be the same. You know, as a father, words, words like these pain me. And I know she's not the only one who feels this way about her dad. Perhaps some of the things she had said resonate with you or maybe in your past. And I've spoken to people even who are in their 80s who vividly remember uh, hurtful things that their dads had done to them. When they were younger, it's just something that sticks with you, doesn't it? Fathers have been given a sacred trust. They've been given a sacred trust by God to love and nurture their children. But too many have abandoned their kids, if not physically, then emotionally or mentally. Too many have abused their children, some in unspeakable ways. Too many have been harsh or neglectful or uncaring or dismissive or distant or always angry. And survey after survey shows the terrible impact these kinds of things can do from a father on their children. Because the one person they should feel secure with, the one person they should trust, the one person who should love them unconditionally. But when that person is abusive or absent or angry, it takes an awful toll on a child. Something breaks inside of them. Right, I'm sure you've heard... A lot of the statistics, the surveys that have been done that describe the impact on someone uh, that has this kind of relationship or with their dad or no relationship at all. How there's a greater likelihood of sexual promiscuity or ending up in prison or alcohol or drug addictions, problems with violence or anger, sexual perversion, inability to trust or forgive others, or a host of other phobias or struggles that can happen. But beyond all of these there's even a more damaging result and that's how it affects that person's perception of god a bad earthly father can make it very difficult to relate to god as father and many have told me that you know i feel i feel close to jesus but not so much with the father i don't know how many times in counseling or talking with folks and i've asked them you know, when you think of god as father what comes to your mind And words like harsh, distant, uncaring, um, even cruel, not to be trusted, unloving, demanding. And so when they hear this need to spend time with the Lord, to have fellowship with Him, to be intimate with Him, rather than being excited about that, it feels more like having to go to the principal's office. Rather than expecting to be embraced, they will expect to be chastised or scolded. And I, I know many feel this way. And if that's a struggle for you, let me just remind you, beloved, human fathers are not the standard, right? Human fathers do not define what a father is truly supposed to be. Indeed, we must learn what father really means from the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus trusted in, the one whom Jesus had fellowship with intimately. You should not dismiss or ignore God the Father, because of your dad. Uh, One theologian, Bruce Ware, said this, Rather than removing Father from our Christian vocabulary, should we not work at having our minds and hearts refashioned so that our very conception of Father is remade by knowing the true Father overall? If some wicked and negligent human fathers rob their children from being able to think of Father positively and rightly, surely we should not add to their problem now by removing from them Any hope of having the concept of father restored, this would be to rob them once again. Beloved, we must trust in God's word and allow, not allow the baggage of of a sinful earthly father to to hinder us, to cloud our view, to cloud our picture, the picture of God the father as he presents himself in his word Because only then, when we see God as He truly is, only then can we experience the fatherly love and wisdom and care and security and protection. So this morning, we come to Hosea 11. And Hosea 11 presents this glorious picture of the fatherhood of God. For here we're given three characteristics of what a true father is, what our heavenly father is. And so if you could be pleased to be turning there to Hosea 11 where we see these three characteristics. And as I read, if you would please stand in honor of the Word of God. I'm going to stop at verse 11, because uh, the next verse goes with the chapter after that. So Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called him, the more they went from him. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call from them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, when we get to chapter 11, there's a a new movement like in a a symphony that maybe has been uh, the music's been loud and and aggressive and fast and all of a sudden shifts to a softer and more melodious tone. And that's what we have here as we move into chapter 11. Chapters 4 to 10, the emphasis has been on Israel's sin and on God's judgment for that sin and how that judgment of exile would be coming. In fact, chapter chapter 10 ends with the phrase, at dawn the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Communicates there that their end was coming soon. But again then as we move into Hosea 11, the tone softens from a judge to a loving father. In these verses in Hosea 11, we see three things about the father. The father's care, a father's correction, and the father's compassion. And as we explore these verses, some of them astonishing, we will see what a true father really is. Who God the Father really is. Let's consider first a father's care in verses one through four. Again, the shift in tone is abrupt in verse one, where God moves, excuse me, from their fast approaching exile to declaring his love for Israel. As he thinks about the people who are going to be going out of the land, he remembers back to or, or reminds them of the time when they came into the, excuse me, into the land. He says there, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. That word love is a different word than we saw before it's not chesed which we talked about loyal love it's a synonym for that it's the word ahav it focuses more on affection care friendship devotion it's used with this idea of a familial love between husband and wife between parent and child in fact we see that idea in the next line where god refers to israel as his son And in describing Israel as a youth here, he's he's hearkening back to the time of the Exodus. We see that early in their relationship, when he freed them out of slavery and brought them into the wilderness. Hosea 2.15, he said that Israel will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And then in verse 1, We see the expression of God's love and how he viewed Israel as that young child that was coming up out of Egypt. And he says there that out of Egypt I called my son. Now that phrase, does that sound familiar? Does that verse sound familiar? It should, right? Matthew actually made it famous in the Christmas story. You remember when Herod was killing the boys two years old and under in Bethlehem. And so an angel told Joseph to take Mary and the child and go to Egypt to protect baby Jesus, and so they went. And then it says, Matthew said in Matthew 2.15, they remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's the reference in Hosea. But when you look at Hosea 11.1, the context here is not a messianic. We don't see anything mentioned here about the Messiah. Rather, it simply refers to Israel, the people of Israel being freed from slavery out of Egypt. And so why does Matthew see Jesus' return as a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1? In what sense is this a prophecy? And how is it being fulfilled? We'll talk about that a little bit later. That's just a little teaser. We'll get to that. Because again, as we've looked at before, whenever we see uh, verses that are quoted in the New Testament, particularly from the prophets, we have to remember first, let's understand what they meant in the context of the prophet. And then we can better understand how the New Testament author or speaker was applying them. And so we're going to look at Hosea a little more first. God referred here in verse 1 to Israel as my son. That's a rare statement in the Old Testament. In fact, up until the time of Hosea, that that phrase was only mentioned once before. There are several times God uh, spoke of Israel as sons and daughters or His children. But that phrase, my son, is unique. The other time that's used later is Jeremiah 31. But the time before it was used here in Hosea, we saw it when He commissioned Moses in Exodus 4.22. And there He said to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So here in Hosea 11, 1, God is linking back to the most significant event in Israel's history up to that point. The days of Israel's youth, when God delivered them from Egypt. When he took them and led them to Mount Sinai. When he spoke words of love and commitment to them. When he gave them instruction on how they were to love and follow God and show love to one another. And so God reminds them here in Hosea that to him, you know, when I drew you out of Egypt, you weren't just some random group of people that I wanted to help out because you were being oppressed. I see you as my son. And as we look at verses 3 and 4, they, they are like a series of vignettes as God is describing uh, his care for Israel from infancy to childhood. It's kind of like, you know, when I read these verses, it made me think about uh, when I look at a family album. It's almost like you're over at somebody's house and you grab a family album you know, uh, on the table there and you start flipping through it. It's like when you look across and you see on one page that uh, dad is feeding his son. You see that page on the, early on in the album where he's holding this little infant, a beaming face, and, and he's holding this little baby with such tenderness and care. You flip over and again see the page where he's feeding his son. There's baby food smeared all over his face and on his bib. And you you see his dad laughing. Or on the page next to it, you see his dad holding his son's little hands as he's learning how to walk and he's guiding him. And a picture right next to that, as you see a a little boy's falling over and his dad's getting ready to catch him. Another photo shows dad bandaging up a bloody knee. Another one has them hugging where he's giving his son comfort. And you see a picture, too, of, of uh, his little boy sitting on his lap as his dad is reading to them, reading to him. And these are all tender scenes, aren't they? As you look through the album, these are heart-tugging images that show the care and concern of a father for his child. And that's the intention here from, from God to portray his own tenderness towards his children, his child. He says in verse 3, Yet I myself, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. It's that picture where he's saying, I, I took you, Israel, out of slavery, and I led you by the hand through the wilderness. Just like a, teaching a toddler how to walk. He describes how they took their first baby steps there. And notice there's no harshness here. You know, when my children were learning how to walk and they'd fall over, I, I didn't say, Hey, what's your problem? Get up! Stop crying! Stop crying! never did that i would help them come alongside them hold their hands at times i would let go to, so they could learn how to to get their balance and equilibrium and, and at times they would fall but i'd be there to catch them and that's the picture here as god says i held them in my i took them in my arms And we've seen that a lot in our Bible reading this month. In Numbers in particular, as they're going through the wilderness, God's care for them and holding their hand as they're taking these baby steps to learn how to trust Him. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're being attacked. And all through, God is providing for them, giving them food, water, protecting them. Remember the Egyptians coming through the Red Sea. God protected them from the Amalekites who were picking them off, people in the back who were slower God protected them from the Amalekites. Later on, in fact, we read Numbers 21, I think it was, the Amorites who were attacking the people of Israel and God protecting them. God says in verse 3 how he healed them. Picture there of a father concerned providing his son with medicine and with vitamins and caring for his wounds when he is injured. I mean, these verses are packed with tender emotion here. Moses reminded them of God's care in Deuteronomy one twenty nine, As they were getting ready to enter the land and the difficulties and challenges that would come there, Moses says this to them, Do not be shocked nor fear them. He's speaking of those in the promised land. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. And then later in Deuteronomy 29, God reminds them of how their their clothes did not wear out those 40 years in the wilderness, and their sandals remained intact. How God even cared for them in that way. He says in verse 4, I led them with the cords of a man, with bonds of love. Uh, That phrase is a little difficult to Uh, to decipher in Hebrew, but the basic idea is God's giving here a picture of gently directing His people, not with some cruel ropes of restraint like you'd put around an animal to domesticate them, but with these smooth cords that soft hands could hold as you lead a child to safety and to blessing. God didn't pull them. He didn't drag them. He drew them. Verse 4 ends with a tender picture. As uh, God describes removing their burdens, He says, I became as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. Uh, That's a picture of of an oxen. You're pulling the yoke from them so they can eat. And God wasn't calling His children oxen there, but just giving that image of how He would care for them. And then He adds the tenderness and the humility by saying, I bent down, I stretched out, I stooped over and fed Him. You know, when I read that verse, it, it reminds me of my grandpa. Uh, when we would come over and bring my son Daniel, um, when he was little, and yes, Daniel was little at one time, but uh, you know, Daniel would be laying on the floor. He wasn't even a year old, and uh, he's laying there, and and I would watch my grandfather. Uh, he was this rugged, rugged man, but he he could barely move at that point. But he got up, and he would he crawled out of his chair, and just slowly and and and. With difficulty, bent over, laid down on the floor, with my son, and moved me to see him there. And he'd lie there, and he said, "Hey, Danny boy, what you doing?" You know, I just you know, I grew up with that man, and that was a tender moment. But I saw in that his care and concern for his little grandson. And I'm not saying God is some old man that you know can barely bend over. But it's this picture of of tenderness and care and humility. And God says, you know, I stooped down and cared for you and fed you, provided for you. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, when he was encouraging uh, the people to pray to the Father. He said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock. The door will be opened. He said, for everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And then he gives these words. And these were words that I didn't really quite get the impact until I had my first child. But he says this, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? maybe some of you who hear this think, well, you know, my dad would give me a stone or a snake. (laughs) But that's not your heavenly father. He cares for his children. And that's what we see in these first four verses. They reveal a father's care. And in that care, a father will bring correction. We see that in the next three verses, verses five to seven, which show a father's correction. Back in verse two, uh, he did reference, uh, allude to Israel's rebellion as he said, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. Some translations there read in verse 2, the more I called them. They change it to a first-person pronoun uh, to fit with the flow from verse 1 to verse 3 where God is speaking. But the problem with that is the Hebrew text has they. They called them. The they there, I think he's referring to the prophets. The prophets. God's speaking to them, but through the prophets. He says just a few verses later in Hosea 12, verse 10, I have spoken to the prophets, and through the prophets I gave parables. So God is simply reminding them there, saying that he had spoken to them, but the people refused to listen, despite God's care for them, despite his direction that he had given them. Hosea himself, if you remember, called them several times for the people to repent, to return to the Lord. Back in chapter 6, verse 1, he said that. But their ongoing faithfulness, their ongoing rebellion, their ongoing sin against God. As a result, God declared through Hosea, in fact, it's a theme in the whole book, that consequences would come. He summarizes this back in Hosea 8, 7. If you remember there, where he said, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. That was Israel. There would be consequences. And the whirlwind that was to come was going to be exile. Several times, we've already seen this. Back in Hosea 8.13, he says they would return to Egypt. And again in 9.3, that they would return to Egypt. That was a metaphorical expression saying they would go back into captivity. And here he says in chapter 11, verse 5, they will not return <clears throat> Excuse me, to Egypt, but Assyria. The question is is he contradicting himself? Before he said they will return to Egypt, here he says they will not. Well the difference is here he's speaking literally now. Again before it was figurative. He was saying they're going to return into captivity as in the days of Egypt, but now it's not Egypt literally that they are going to. It will be Assyria who will take them into captivity and who will rule over them. Assyria would do it by violence. That's the picture in verse 6. He's this picture of a, of a warrior wielding a sword and he's whirling it back and forth in battle. And the things in which Israel had trusted in, their fortified palaces, their city gates, the things they had found security in, God says that in, in this consequence those would be torn away. Those would be torn down. There would be no security in those things. The gate bars in verse 6, I think, is just the posts that hold up the city gates. And he's saying they will be destroyed. There will be no protection this would be a terrifying experience. Many would be forcibly torn away from their homes. And as Hosea 9.6 says, they would be buried on foreign soil. They would not be coming back. Not that generation. And again, the reason for these severe consequences are repeated again in verse 7. That the people had this constant disposition of walking away from God. God only saw their backs despite all the warnings that he had given them they were always looking for help and direction and security and happiness and anything but god that continued betrayal would bring the father's correction that was something he warned them about all the way from the days of sinai that if they had turned away from him forsaken him sinned against him and against one another that god would bring these consequences now, someone reading verses 5 to 7, some of us may say, well, see, here's another example. of God just being a harsh father who you don't want to tick off or you're really going to get it. Once he blows his top, you better watch out. But we'll see in verses 8 to 11, that notion will be totally dispelled there. But before we do that, we need to take a moment and think about God's correction and that it is a good thing. His fatherly correction is a good thing. It's a protection. It's a protection from hurting ourselves. Because Israel was getting themselves into all kinds of trouble. They were entertaining, getting involved with other nations and their gods, and they were adopting their practices, one of which was to sacrifice their own babies on an altar to a false god. So God would warn them of this correction to keep them from hurting themselves in that way. We do that with our own kids, don't we? When you see your child going up to an outlet, wanting to stick something in it, do you just watch in curiosity? Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. Right? No, you go, wait, stop, don't do that. Get away from that. It's dangerous. And if they went later and did it again, right, you would give them a consequence just to show them, this is serious. This is important. I mean, you could plug up, put something, cover the plug, but that's not going to protect them when they're at somebody else's house, is it? We, we train them and sometimes give consequences so they wouldn't get themselves into danger, greater danger. Same thing when you call to them, right? Little kids wander in the street, don't they? So we will train them to respond when we call, to, when we say stop or come here, that they will obey. Not because we have a power trip, but because there are times that they'll be in danger and they need to listen. I remember a parenting class I was doing one time, uh, sharing that example, and a lady got very upset. She said, that, that's just cruel and harsh. You're just being authoritative. And it wasn't long after that, the next time I saw her in a subsequent class, she was very discouraged, and I said, well, what's wrong? And she went on to tell me that her five-year-old was riding her bike into the street. And when she told her daughter to stop, her daughter just looked back at her with defiance and kept on going. She got hit by a car. She survived, but uh, you know our children, they need correction so that they would obey our instruction for their own safety. Proverbs 23, says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The same way God uses the rod to protect us from hurting ourselves. It's also a protection from hurting others. Right? If, don't our children need consequences if they're hitting or yelling or screaming or showing anger at someone else or being selfish? Don't we need to bring consequences in their lives in order to help them not do that? For the sake of those other people that they're hurting. Hosea 4, he described what the people were doing to one another, the people of Israel. He said there that there is swearing, deception, murder, adultery, stealing. They employ violence. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Their sin wasn't just something that affected them individually, but other people severely murder, adultery, swearing, stealing, violence. These bring real pain and suffering into other people's lives. Hosea 4.3, in the next verse, he went on to say, Therefore the land mourns, and those in it languish. God uses to correction to restrain us from sinning against someone else, to restrain us from bringing them harm. Also protects us from harming our relationship with God. Back in Hosea 6.6, 6, he said, I delight, I desire loyal love and the knowledge of God. But the people sin God in the way of that. And so God would bring correction and, and the warning of consequences to come so that they would turn from their paths and seek the Lord. He said in Hosea 5.15, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face In their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. And that's a good thing. Right? God created us to have fellowship with him, to find satisfaction and joy and peace only in him. That's what we've been designed to do. And God loves us enough that He will bring correction in our lives in order to keep us from straying in our relationship away from Him. That's for our good. In addition to that, His correction is also a protection from bringing shame and dishonor to God. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. That's true, isn't it? When a child or someone in the family sins, it's not only shame that's brought upon that individual, but the whole family, right? In the same way, our sin brings shame to our father. Back when David and his terrible, terrible sins with Bathsheba and, and what he did there, and the prophet Nathan came to him and said, By this deed you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme God because of what he did. Our sin does that. It maligns the name of our holy and good God. And so it is good that he brings correction. That's a right thing to keep us from doing that. The writer of Psalm 119 recognized this. He said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. His correction protects us from bringing him dishonor. And it also protects us from being a bad witness. Israel, it said in Hosea 7, 8, they had mixed themselves with the nations. They had adopted many of the nations' practices. And Remember, it was supposed to be the other way around, wasn't it? That God had chosen Israel as his people in order that they would be a what to the nations? A light, right? An influence. That God would use Israel to draw the world unto himself. But because of their sin, their light was snuffed out. Jesus told us to be salt and light, right? But our sin can contaminate our saltiness. It can dim our light. So God will graciously graciously bring correction at times in order to help us, remind us to be an effective witness. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, our our behavior, our testimony is so important. And so correction begins with the house of God to keep our witness pure. And God cares enough for His glory and cares enough for our good that He brings correction in your lives. And there are many other reasons, but I just wanted to share a few of them with you so you would see that God's correction is not a vengeful thing. It's not something that He does because you made Him angry. He's ticked off and so He's going to get back at you. But rather, it is a good thing. It is a protection. It puts a hedge around us in a good way. Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That was just after he had um, admonished the church at Laodicea. Hebrews 12.5, we see the same thing. Where it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Did you catch his goal there for correction? A couple of things he said. One, he says, so that we may share his holiness and also so that we may yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Aren't those good things? Amen. They are. They are. That brings us to the third characteristic we see for Heavenly Father. We've seen in verses 1 to 4, he talks about a father's care. In verses 5 through 7, a father's correction. And then in the last four verses, 8 through 11, a father's compassion. A father's compassion. And these three sections that we see here in chapter 11, they also follow a a structure in terms of time. If you notice, verses 1 to 4 uh, deals with the past deals with the early days, the days in the wilderness, the days coming out of Egypt. And then in verses 5 through 7, it's focused more on the present or the very near future, where this coming consequence is going to take place. But then in verses 8 through 11, it deals with the future. It speaks of the future there, the restoration of Israel. That restoration is described in verses 10 and 11. How God will call them out of bondage once again, out of the captivity, out of the exile, back into the land, he says there. He notes, he says, they will come from the west. West is often, literally is the sea. Often refers to the Mediterranean Sea, which was on the western border of Israel. He says there will be those who will return humbly from Egypt to the south and also from Assyria to the northeast The picture here is that his people have been scattered across the globe and now they will be returning from all four corners of the earth to settle within the land. In fact, at the end of verse 11, he gives these comforting words. I will settle them. I will make them to live, to dwell securely in their houses. They would be home. They would be home. That promise is still yet to be fulfilled. And this restoration of Israel is not unique to Hosea, right? This isn't the first time that we've talked about it or seen it or heard it. It was mentioned in Obadiah. Joel talked about it. Also Amos, we saw it focused there as well on the restoration of Israel. So these verses, while are wonderful and encouraging, especially for those considering the fact they would be in exile, they're not surprising. But what is surprising, even shocking, is how God expresses and why He says he will bring this restoration. If we go back and remind ourselves, verses 5 to 7, he referred to their exile. It would be a violent exile where there would be a sword being yielded. The people would be taken in violence. Many would be hurt. Others killed. Most would be taken into captivity. It's a severe consequence. In fact, its effects are still rippling in history, even up until today. And as God reflects on that severity, notice what he says In verse 8, he exclaims, really, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you? That means to deliver you over to your enemies, O Israel. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over. It's recoiled. It's overthrown. It's demolished within me. All of my compassions are kindled, excited. This is an astonishing response. There are very few places in the Bible where we see God open up his heart in such a fashion, where we see such intense emotional language from God. The word how here is not introducing a question, but a lament. How could I do this? How can I give you over to your enemies? He mentions here two cities, Adma and Zeboim. Now, these two cities uh, are known for being located in the same valley, in the, in the same region as two other famous cities that God destroyed by fire. You remember those two? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There were actually five cities that were located in that region. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and another. And uh, why does he say Adma and Zeboim here, though? Because normally when God would refer to utter destruction, a symbol of that destruction, almost all the time in the Bible it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah both in the Old Testament and the New. But here he says Adma and Zeboim. Those places are only mentioned a couple of times in Genesis and then one other time in Deuteronomy 29. And that's where Moses was uh, giving them the warnings and the consequences that would take place if they forsook the Lord. And he mentions there that the destruction would be like Adma and Zeboim. I think here God is specifically linking back to that passage because it was specific to his people and the consequences would come. And he's thinking upon those words that he had given them, that they would be like Adma and Zeboim, and says, here, how can I do that to you? How could you be utterly and permanently destroyed like what happened to those cities? Which, by the way, they've never been excavated. No one's quite sure where they are. Perhaps they're under the Dead Sea, but no one knows because we've never found them again. Outside of Deuteronomy 29, that's the only other place where they're mentioned, except for the few times in Genesis. And it seems here again that, that God is saying, how could I bring myself to do that? How could I utterly destroy my people? And it is then God exclaims, my my heart is turned over. Again, that means to be overthrown, to, be, to recoil, to turn within, Troubled. He says, my compassions are excited. They're, they're flaring up. And here he's not saying that, oh, I'm conflicted. I don't know what to do. Ah! That's not the picture. Rather, it's this hurts. This brings me pain. This grieves me. My, my heart aches. My desire for mercy and compassion is stirred. And you see, God, he's, he's perfectly just and holy, right? Right. He hates sin, he will punish sin, he will judge sin, but he doesn't do it gleefully. When considering the judgment coming upon Israel, it stirred his compassion, stirred it to the point that he declares this judgment will not be permanent. This consequence will not be forever. If you look in verse 9, he says, I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Three times here. What does he say? Three times. I will not. I will not. I will not. Right? If we think back in the context here, he's saying, I have loved them from childhood. I taught them to walk. I carried them in my arms. I, I cared for them while they were sick and needed to be cared for. I I held them in my arms and drew them to me in love. And yes, they continued to stray from me. They were constantly rebelling against me. They refused my warnings. They spurned my patience. They didn't listen to my prophets. So I will judge them, but not a permanent judgment. I will not, he says. I will not. I will not. Again, God isn't conflicted here. It's not like... His mercy and compassion are, are battling his wrath and he's totally confused, doesn't know what to do. Rather, he's using language here to accommodate us, to, to help us understand the depth of the compassion and love and care that he has. So we would have but a taste as he opens up his heart for us to see the taste of a father's compassion. Because right, any, any dad who truly loves his children... Any father who genuinely cares for his kid, he never glories in disciplining them. It's not like when my children get in trouble and they do something and there'd be a consequence and I take them and they're, ah, oh, this is going to be great. I, I can't wait to do this. I'm going to sit them down. I'm going to scold them. And then I'm going to give them, chastise them. And, oh, this is going to be wonderful. That, that was not it. I'm never excited about it. I didn't find satisfaction in it as if it were some sort of payback. Honestly, Hannah, I didn't, really. <laughs> no, I was often hurt and grieved. It stirred in me a desire for mercy, but I knew they needed those consequences. As Psalm one hundred thirteen one oh three thirteen says, just as a com- father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We have a father who truly cares We have a Father who desires our good, who is willing to forgive us when we confess our sins. We have a Father who is full of compassion, full of mercy, full of a desire to forgive. Amen? Now, if you look back at the middle of verse 9, God just made a statement that He's not going to bring permanent judgment. And then in the middle of verse 9, He gives a reason that will back up the assurance for that statement. Very interesting what He says there. He says, for I am God and not man. The idea there is, I'm God, I've made a promise, and unlike people, I keep my promises. And then he says this, I am the Holy One. Now when when he says that, normally the next statement you would expect, particularly in a context where he has talked about sin, is I am the Holy One and I will come in wrath. But here he says, I am the Holy One of Israel and I will come not come in wrath you see a problem here right he is he's there seems to be a quandary god is holy he is just he judges sin he's perfect in that but at the same time he made a promise to israel right he made a promise to restore them he made a promise to be their god and they his people he made a promise to dwell with them. And on top of that, he expresses here the the deep compassion and care and love he has for them. And then he says, I am the Holy One and I will not come in wrath. This is a dilemma and it must have been apparent to Hosea who spoke these words. We don't see it here explicitly, but uh, perhaps it's very possible Hosea is thinking, hey, wait a minute, how does God remain perfectly just and at the same time keep his promise how is it that god will judge and at the same time show compassionate mercy how does god remain just how is he perfectly holy and yet not bring wrath for sin you see the dilemma but as g campbell morgan said our Bible doesn't end in Hosea. Amen? It doesn't end in Hosea. It's ironic, you know, Hosea's name means salvation. Uh, it's the same root word as Yeshua, Jesus. Actually, as we consider this, this gives us the key in understanding why Matthew would say that Jesus' return was a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Because Jesus is the answer to Hosea's dilemma. Jesus is why we can say, why God can say, excuse me, I am the Holy One and I will not come in wrath. God's promise to restore in Hosea 11 was fulfilled when that young boy came out of Egypt back into the land of Israel. And that young boy grew into manhood. And that young boy lived a perfect life. And that young boy became a man and died on a cross as sufficient payment for our sin, for any who would confess and repent and believe. So Matthew is looking at the expectation and what Hosea was talking about here in chapter 11. And in that sense, Jesus coming out of Egypt fulfilled prophecy because it was the path for Israel's restoration and in the end the path for salvation to any who believe. God's mercy and justice and wrath and love were all satisfied in that moment as Jesus' blood poured out upon the wood on the cross. One author said, the sublime solution of Christianity set forth in a cross raised on a lonely hill seems to have remained beyond Hosea's horizon. But it is enough to know that the love of God that Hosea depicts in deep, emotive terminology was the motivation for the cross. Because again, at the cross, justice and mercy meet. Sin is punished. But sin is forgiven. Wrath is satisfied and love is expressed. The love of, of a father. The great love of a father. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. He gave his son. And I, there's a picture, you know, as I reflect on this passage, there's a picture. It's one of my favorites. I have it in my office. When I look at this picture, I don't remember a lot of things. My memory's going. But I remember that moment. And I remember smiles on my kids' faces. And I remember the joy I felt at being their dad. Because I love my kids. It's an imperfect love. I'm far from that. Just ask my kids. They will be happy to tell you how much I blow it. But I love them. I have a deep affection for them. God loves His kids. And He's a perfect Father. His love is a perfect love. Unblemished, unstained by any sin. And as I thought about it, if if I love my children so much, if my affection for them is so great, even when there's sin at times in our relationship, I can't even imagine the degree of love God has for me. I can't fathom it. It was deep enough to give up His Son on the cross. 1 John 4, nine says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, meditate on those words a moment as we go to prayer together. Before I pray, meditate on His love for you. Oh, Father, that You would allow us to call You Father, that You would desire that, that You would even, through Your Son Jesus, teach us to approach You as our Father Lord, take away any wrong impressions we have of you because of perhaps our own fathers or just, uh, Lord, the biases that we have. But let us, Lord, understand through your word. May your spirit give us understanding of these words in Hosea, who you really are, a true father who cares and is concerned for his children, who will bring correction for your glory and for our good and who has a great and overwhelming compassion. Lord, I pray for any here who maybe their dads have disappeared, have been distant, or have just done or said terrible things, that, God, you would, to your fatherhood, and your care and concern for them would would overcome that, that they would see you desire fellowship with them. Lord, if there are any here who are not your children, who cannot call you father because they have not been adopted by you, may you draw them... To you in faith and repentance they would confess their sins and come near to you and ask for forgiveness and trust in the Lord Jesus to save them through his death on the cross. Thank you for your great love. We're so grateful. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Amen.